This morning we're looking at Colossians 1, verses 28 through 29. We'll spend both this week and next week in these two verses, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Let me pray for us uh, before we open the Word of God together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are in need this morning. We're in need of Your work in our midst. Truly, we are wasting our time and there is little purpose in being here if you're not working. And so we pray that by the power of your Son and by the Spirit that you would work in us, you would work through us this morning, that you would work through this feeble preacher and that you would work by your Word. And that we would know that we have had your help today. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, which He powerfully works within me. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. At the beginning of the year, we do something a little different here at URC. We uh, take a little break from our normal diet of preaching expositionally through a book of the Bible, and we do what we call our faith focus. And this year, our faith focus is uh, what the elders have been praying and thinking through over the last year, our vision for going forward here at URC. And so we are going to preach through that vision here in January. Last week, we looked at our kind of overarching purpose, our mission as a church, and it is this, that URC exists to glorify and enjoy Christ. It's what we looked at last week, that overarching mission, our our purpose as a church. And as we said last week, there are three pillars of our ministries here at URC, how we go about glorifying and enjoying Christ. And it has always been true that these three things have marked URC, and by God's grace, we hope that it will be these three things that continue to mark URC as we go forward, and that is proclaiming Christ, growing in Christ, and advancing the mission of Christ. What we will do in our Sunday evenings here in the month of January, is we're going to take that last piece, advancing the mission of Christ, 
And there are three things that the elders have identified that will be kind of our focus, our goals for the next three to five years as we seek to advance the mission of Christ. And Pastor Kevin will tackle that first this evening, which is church planting. And as we'll hear more from Devin Rossman about the church plant up in Mount Pleasant. But this morning, we're looking at that first pillar, proclaiming Christ. This is where all of our ministry begins here at URC, proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ was Paul's focus in ministry. It is our focus in ministry. And so what I want to do this morning is look at that. I just want to keep it very simple this morning. We're going to look at it under four points. The message, the message, and then the means, the manner, and the mindset. So the message, the means, the manner, and the mindset as we look at these verses together. First, the message. And I think about Colossians 1, 28 and 29, I think of these as kind of Paul's life ministry verses. He tells us in these verses what he is about. In all his discourses, in all of his preaching, he says there is one subject. He did not occupy himself with the latest headlines of the Roman Empire. He did not grab the attention of his hearers with jokes. He did not rail against the philosophy of the Greeks in his ministry. His ministry was dominated by one single thing. He begins with it in this verse. He puts it at the very front. There is one thing. Him. Him. He says, we proclaim. Now, Paul was a scholar. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures as well as anybody in his generation. He knew it better than surely anyone in this room. He could have spoken for hours and could have spoken for days in his preaching and his teaching and his proclaiming upon the Levitical law and the priesthood and the patriarchs. And yet, he says, what he proclaimed was him. He knew John. He knew Peter. He knew James, the brother of Jesus. These three monumental figures in the early church. And yet, what Paul proclaimed was not them. But rather, he said, him. Who is him? It's clear if you go back up to verse 27, the immediate referent is Christ. Christ, he says the same thing in other passages, 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One message, Christ and Him crucified. It all begins here. As a church, we seek to proclaim Christ. If we are known for anything, let it be this, that we proclaim Christ. Not our music as wonderful it is. Not the number of kids we have, though what a blessing it is. Not maybe our desire to seek diversity, though that can be a good thing. 
But let it be that we are known for proclaiming Christ. Not our building, not our resources, not our creativity, but that we proclaim Christ. It all begins here. And it begins here in our corporate worship. But it doesn't stop there. Each of us seeks to proclaim Him as we go out into the world, as we minister to one another, as we minister to our neighbors, as we disciple our children. We proclaim Christ. Notice, He says, Him we proclaim. We. It's one Noted New Testament scholar said, he said, the reversion to the plural form, whom we proclaim, is typical of the way Paul catches himself every so often to ensure that the scope of what is being said is not being taken in too restricted a sense. The responsibility of evangelism and its corollary is not his alone. In fact, just two chapters later in Colossians 3, He will say to the entire church at Colossae, He will say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We are to proclaim Christ. If we are not doing that as a church, we are not the church. What are we doing if we're not doing that? This is what we are to believe. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. And why do we proclaim Him? Because we love Him. We will not proclaim what we do not love. And we always proclaim what we in fact do love. Paul knew the love of Christ. And he knew the value of Christ. And he wanted everyone else to know and treasure Christ as he knew and treasured Christ. Love is the great wellspring of ministry. This is why we proclaim him here. Because we love him. We're all natural evangelists for what we most love. A decade ago, I was invited by one of the members of our church to a father-son gathering. And so I grabbed Ethan and we went to this person's house. And there were all of these fathers and sons there, maybe a dozen or so. And even if I hadn't known what son belonged to which father, I could have told you in that room. Because every single son was wearing the same team's ball cap that his father was wearing. Now, how does that happen? Well, the father bought the ball cap for his son. Well, probably, but don't ruin my illustration. It's because the father was an evangelist for what he loved. And so the son began rooting for the same team that the father rooted for. We're natural evangelists for what we love. Have you ever met someone that does CrossFit? Or that voluntarily decided to go gluten-free in their diet? They tell you. Natural evangelists for what we love. 
Love for Christ leads you and I to proclaiming Christ. We speak from the heart to the heart. I often think of this on Saturday evenings when uh, I'm finishing up things for Sunday morning. My family's already gone to bed and it's just a quiet study downstairs that I'm in. And I often pray this think along these lines and try and get my heart to this place before I go to bed at night and I will pray this prayer Jason give it to them warm Lord help me to give it to them warm and as on Saturday night I, I want to I want to so know the love of Christ and so be filled with the love of Christ and the experience of abiding in Christ And from that warm knowledge of dwelling with Christ, that's how then I want to show up here on Sunday to extend Christ to you. Every single one of us in this room, and all of us around this place and this world, though they don't know it, should be saying, as the Greeks said to Philip in John 12, where they approached Philip and they said, Sir, we would just see Christ. It's, it's the great need. And we're the great vehicle by which He is proclaimed. That is our message. Is that your message to one another in conversations? Is that your message with your children when you're driving to school or you're homeschooling? Or is that your message when you're with your neighbor and talking over the back fence? Is it ever the message? This is how we decide what we're going to do at URC and what we're not going to do. There are so many good things that we could be doing. So many good things. But everything that we do, from Christianity Explored and, and, and uh, ESL to the Women's Doctrine Study and DIG, our youth ministries and our children's ministries and our growth groups and our Sunday school classes, all of it is centered upon this, that we are seeking to proclaim Christ. That all of our gatherings, all the ministry that we're doing, that it's all proclaiming Christ. If that's not happening in our Bible studies, if it's not happening in our children's wing, if it's not happening in our growth groups and in our different ministries, then what are we doing? We exist to proclaim Christ. It's the great need of the hour. He's the message. Is Christ the message here week in and week out? If not, shouldn't be doing. He's the message. Second, the means. The means. People in the church often talk about the need to connect with this generation. So we are told that we need to be sociologists and cultural exegetes so we can be effective at communicating the gospel in a changing world. But it's not that complicated. It's not. 
God didn't call us to be sociologists. He called us to be heralds. Heralds of what He has already given to us. If we jump back to verse 25, Paul is explaining his ministry, and he says he became a minister, quote, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He has a stewardship, the minister, to the people of God on behalf of God. Now, how does he accomplish that stewardship? Well, he tells us, he says, by making, quote, the word of God fully known. We proclaim Christ by the word of Christ. That's the means. The challenge of our day is not to figure out what is palatable or acceptable as a bridge to our culture. It is simply to proclaim what God has commanded people in every culture of every age to believe. The world changes, but our message does not change. It's the same. We preach Christ. The Christ of the Scriptures. That means we proclaim Him as He is. He's not a wax nose that you and I get to mold and shape to our liking or to the liking of the world. He is who He is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, He said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. In every age, every age, there seems to be movements within the church. And I think people's motives are usually in the right place. But there's a movement in every age of the church. There's one in our age. There'll be another in the age after where we just... There's an attempt to just mold Christ just to make Him a little more palatable. To take away the offense. So-called bridge the gap. Often well-meaning, but frankly stupid. Just stupid. Try and take away the offense of a crucified Savior. To want to avoid talking about sin and hell and judgment. Because we're heralds. We don't get to be creative here. We're heralds. We proclaim what we have received. Nothing more, nothing less. We devote ourselves to His Word. We rely upon His means. There are many... Over these last number of years, I think in the American evangelical church who fear that the church will be ravaged with persecution. I don't fear the church is going to be ravaged with persecution. That doesn't scare me. I fear the church being ruined with compromise. Ruined by embracing an anemic Christ of our own making. The early church rightly feared heresy more than it feared martyrdom. There will be increasing pressures upon you and I and us as a church to back away from who Christ is. 
to back away from what the Scriptures teach. Just to fudge it a little bit here or there. To make it a little easier, we're told, for people in our culture, in our day and age, in the, the 21st century, accept Christ. Don't you dare. Let's be clear. We know that the Christ of the Scriptures is offensive. He offends sinners. But it's the Christ of the Scriptures who offends sinners that saves sinners. That's the only Christ that can save. Paul, after saying we preach Christ crucified, says a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He says this, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is, as Peter says, the one mediator between God and men. Can't change Him. Don't need a new message to reach this generation. You don't need a new message to reach that campus. I want to take away all the mystery for you this morning. Christ crucified is a message that has been rejected in every age and in every culture. And it will be rejected in this age and it will be rejected in this culture. But here's the other part of that equation. Christ crucified is a message that has been accepted in every age and every culture. And it will be accepted in this age and in this culture. From the Roman world to the modern world, from Timbuktu to New York City, from the French Republic to Communist China, from cannibals to vegans, Christ crucified saves. He saves. Christ and Christ crucified is not ineffective in any culture, nor in any time. It is never inconsiderate for us to proclaim Christ as He is presented in the Scriptures. Christ and Christ crucified never needs adapting, never needs to be supplemented. Christ and Christ crucified was the hope of the world in the first century, and Christ and Christ crucified will be the hope of the world in the 26th century if Christ tarries. Same message. Same means. It is Christ, and it is by the word of Christ. Third, notice the manner. Paul was stirred with earnestness. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Toil is a, is a strong Greek word that he's employing here. It has been used in different Greek contexts to refer to someone that had been beaten to a bloody pulp and the, the physical exertion and weariness that they experience from being beaten. For this I toil. If it's even possible, the word struggle is even stronger than the word toil. 
It was often used to refer to what someone felt at the end of physical combat with weapons. He says, for this I toil and struggle. Paul is being worn out in the proclaiming of Christ. As he will say in another context, he is pouring out his life as a drink offering for the sake of proclaiming Christ. It is costly for him. There was earnestness in doing so. It's their earnestness. Proclaiming of Christ. People sometimes wonder why Christians can't seem to stop sharing about the person of Christ. That's fine that you're passionate about it, but do that by yourself. Why do you have to tell other people? And try and get other people to be passionate about this Christ that you're passionate about. Why is it that your preachers are so fervent and so long-winded in their sermons? Why can't they be a little more jolly and a little less serious? Because lives hang in the balance. That's why. Perishing. People are perishing. There's an earnestness to our proclaiming Christ. You don't approach a house on fire and do your best comedy stand-up routine. You don't See a child in the upper window of a burning house and walk away with a clear conscience thinking, well, it's not my child. It's not really my concern. You don't worry about infringing and trespassing upon their personal space. You rush in. And you rush in to save. You're compelled. Why? Because that child's perishing. know. And others around us don't know. And they're dying. They're dying. As one Puritan said, the hazard of souls and lives will make dumb men speak. There's an earnestness because we know what loss there is if Christ does not receive. As you grow in the Christian life, you tend to become bolder in proclaiming Christ. Just telling Leah the other day, I was encouraged because I had seen growth in my own Christian life. I was was confronting someone with the gospel, just telling her about that. And I said, you know, ten years ago I, I would have I would have shied away and I wouldn't have done it in that context. And I hope by God's grace that in ten years down the road I look back at the Jason of today and think that man was a coward and not bold at all. I've grown so much more. person is just too precious to remain silent. 
Fear of that soul being lost is worth the awkwardness. There's an earnestness. But notice this. All that toil, all that striving that Paul says he expends himself in, he says in verse 29, is by the power of Christ working in him. He knows that all of this labor and all of this striving and all of this toiling will achieve nothing apart from Christ. And that can be true of us as a church. Each of us can do that as individuals as we go about and we're proclaiming Christ. It can accomplish absolutely nothing if Christ is not at work. But with Him, it can turn the world upside down as was said about the church in Acts. And that leads to our final point, our mindset. The message is Christ, the means is His Word, and our manner is earnest, and our mindset is hopeful. Paul is hopeful in this text. He says his aim is, quote, to present everyone mature in Christ. He's hopeful. He's laboring towards that end. I'm going to take more time on that next week. But he's hopeful. There are times when I'm preaching, I've spent hours during the week trying to craft a message that's orderly and clear and logical and helpful that I think will be effective in conveying the sense of the text to people here and spend all that time and that labor. And then I get up here on a Sunday morning and it feels like what I have said is not going any further than the end of this pulpit. It was like, not a single person has been affected. There hasn't been a change in the room. One person. Oh, it feels like it's for nothing. That's why it's so important to remember that this is the Spirit's work. I need His work when I'm preparing. We both need His work as the Word is proclaimed. You need His work as you're sharing the Gospel, as you're proclaiming Christ over your fence, or with that person at work in the cubicle next to you, or with your children when you're going through the homeschool day, or as you're driving them to school and you're proclaiming Christ to them. We need the work of the Spirit. That is true on Sunday morning, and that is true throughout our week. This, at least for me, actually makes ministry hopeful. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. You see, He works. He works. And it's His work. It's not oratory or even compelling reason that works the work of God in our midst. It's God. It's not the eloquence of the preacher or the evangelist or the counselor or the proclaimer or the parent that affects souls. It's the person of God. It's His work. 
Paul says about himself in 2 Corinthians that he did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The people in the Corinthian church were not impressed with him as a person. They accused him of being weak in body. You're weak, Paul, when you speak to us. In fact, they said that his speech was of, quote, no account. He will say in chapter 11 there of Corinthians that he indeed may be unskilled in speaking. He confesses that to them. And yet he says, God works through me. It's his work. And that actually gives us reason for hope. If I enter the pulpit with no preparation, then I am a fool. But I am even more of a fool if I think my preparation will work the work of God apart from God. He works. His work. And so we continually bathe all of our proclaiming of Christ, all of our ministries, we bathe it in prayer, asking Him to work. There's a reason I pray that prayer of illumination before we read the Scripture and hear it preach. There's a reason that I'll go home later today and I'll be praying for you. And the word that you heard read and preached this morning. He works, and that should make us hopeful. I was telling our staff uh, the other day, I was telling them that you know, preaching's a weird thing. It is weird. It's weird for a lot of reasons. One of them is that I was telling them the other day that I find that often when I'm preaching, that while I'm preaching, I find myself praying for different ones of you. My eyes fall upon you, and I think about your hurting and your pain, and I'm praying while I'm preaching, Lord, comfort that person. Or I'm praying for that person that like needs the rebuke that is happening in the text of that moment as my eyes fall upon them or as I fall upon you and I see you falling asleep. And yes, I see you falling asleep. I pray for you. pains me to think how often I preach without praying. It's awful. And it's foolish. And it should pain you to think how often you sit here and you're not praying. This work. You can sit here with the Bible open on your lap. And you can try and tune out all the distractions in the room. That rustling paper over there and the kid that's gotten up and gone to the bathroom for the fourth time this morning. And that person over there that you have conflict with and you're hoping not to see after the service. You've gotten all that out of your mind. And you're so attentive on what's being said and it still can all be for naught if he's not working. What should be happening in this room is that as I'm preaching, that we're all just praying. 
there's all these little prayers that are just popping up all over the place. If I could see it spiritually, the way I see it is it'd be like whack-a-mole. It's like, oh, boom, there goes Danielle with a prayer, and there goes John with a prayer, and there goes Nick with a prayer, and there goes Heidi with a prayer. And they're all just kind of going up. We're little furnaces, all this, these prayers just rising up to heaven in the midst of this because it's his work. And we need him working in our midst. that grants us the greatest reason to have hope in proclaiming Christ. Because those sinners are hard. Because though you and I are hard, the sovereign reigning king of the universe is at work. It's a story of a seminary preaching professor that took his students on a field trip one day. He led them out of the classroom and he led them down the road to a cemetery that was down the road and led them out to that cemetery and he had a pulpit set up in the cemetery and he called up the first young man and he told him, all right, now preach. And the student began to complain and the student said, it's a cemetery and they're all dead. And the professor said, yes. You have nothing to rely upon but the Word and the Spirit. And God, this God, makes dead things come alive by His Word and by His Spirit. He works. He brings from death to life. He brings from darkness to light. He works. Christ is active in this world and He works by His Word and so we are hopeful. He is not idle in heaven. He is not blind. He is not insensitive to the need of sinners. He is not distant. He is not disinterested. He is working and active and accomplishing His purposes and that gives us hope as we proclaim Christ. It's the great need. Friend, you shared the truth with over the decades and still has not come to know Christ, there's hope. Your child that's wandered away from the Lord that you pray for every single night with tears, there's hope. That person that's in your workplace that truly hates and despises Christ and hates you because you love Christ. There's hope. Because he's active in this world. And he works powerfully, as Paul says. We too often become discouraged because we don't see immediate fruit from proclaiming Christ. But that's a mistake. He's working. It may be that the word you sow today, that proclamation of Christ today, doesn't produce fruit in five days or five weeks or five months or five years or 15 years or 50 years. But he's working. Charles Bridges, a Church of England minister in a previous generation, used to say to preachers he was training, the word you sow may lie underground until you do. And that may be true. Keep proclaiming. Keep doing so as a church. And you need to keep doing so as Christians. 
That's what this world needs. You got it. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. We sow the seed. And we have a fixed hope because our sovereign, all-powerful, gracious Christ is at work. He powerfully works. As a church, we believe that. As your pastor, I believe that. URC has seen the fruit of it over 50 plus years. And so by God's grace, we're going to keep proclaiming Christ. No matter who thinks it's silly. No matter who thinks it needs to be adapted. We're going to keep proclaiming the Christ of the scriptures. You hold me accountable to that. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that. You need to keep proclaiming Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your Son sent into this world to live to die upon the cross for sinners. We're thankful that though it is foolishness to the world, it is the power of you, our God, unto salvation. You help us to cling closely to Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures. To be stirred and zealous to proclaim them. And never wander from it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.